If you were asleep, you're not anymore. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 19 through 40, uh, and we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the book of Acts, but we're in chapter 11, 19 through 40 uh, to begin. So whenever we chase after a goal, or we start something new, or we want to change direction, we usually look to someone or something as a model for change. And as a church, we want to do good work for the kingdom of God and for the glory of Christ, right? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. We want to be a church that is on mission so that others can know and hear about the good name of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be. So we need a model or a structure to help us point, be pointed in the right direction. I mean, we understand the fundamentals, right? We understand that we have to love God, that we have to love others, and that we have to preach the gospel. We understand the fundamentals. But how do we do it? How do we do it? We have the knowledge, but we need to know the steps to put that knowledge into action. Sometimes the distance between where we are and where we want to be is just a model to follow. Sometimes that's where it is. Today we're going to read about a church that is a great model. It's a great model for how we should be doing ministry at First Baptist Church Louise. In fact, I want to tell you that I think this is probably the most important church in the New Testament. If it's not the most important, it's at least tied with the church in Jerusalem, but it's pretty important. I'm talking about the church in Antioch of Syria. Okay? There are two cities that we'll see throughout the book of Acts called Antioch. This is Antioch of Syria. It's about 300 miles from Jerusalem. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was basically Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. It had a population of about 500,000 people, and it was a major connection point between Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, and Mesopotamia for trade. Okay, so there were a lot of people coming, and there were a lot of people going. It was a cultural center for Greek thought, the arts, and even their spirituality. Antioch didn't have a great reputation. It was pretty morally lax. In fact, the entirety of the Roman Empire heard and talked about the rampant immorality in Antioch. Just outside the city, there were temples where ritual prostitution was practiced. One ancient historian even said that the filth of the Orontes, which is a river that ran close to Antioch, had flowed into the Tiber, which is where Rome was. Basically, that the immorality from Antioch had flowed into Rome. If you want to think about it like this, Antioch was kind of like the Vegas or New Orleans of the Roman Empire. There was much debauchery, much sin, and an extreme need for repentance. But God... But God saw a city that would be used to glorify him. A people that needed to know the love of Christ, that needed to know the reality of the risen Christ. A city that would become one of the most important cities in all of Christianity. A city filled with Gentiles that would reach the world for the kingdom of God. God would use this city to build a church that would extend the mission of Jesus to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we look through the scriptures and we can see your fingerprints and your design and what you are doing through the working of others. Lord, I pray that as a church and as an individual, Lord, that you would use me to glorify you. 
in all that we say and all that we think and all that we do that we would be used to glorify your name. And this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's look at the church in Antioch together, okay? What do they do? How do they do it? And how can we, as a church body, imitate it? Now, we don't have nearly 500,000 people living in our area, but we can still impact our community, right? We can still follow the steps to impact the community to preach the gospel to them. So in Acts chapter 11, verse, Acts chapter 11, verse 19, here's what it says. Now, there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we see the first thing that this church in Antioch was doing, that the people in Antioch were doing, was that they were evangelizing. They were telling people about the good news of Jesus. And we see here that now there were those who were scattered. Let's not forget that the the scattered were those that were in Jerusalem and exited Jerusalem when they started persecuting and martyring people there. So they had left their homes, they had left their histories behind, and they were fleeing from persecution. The people had spread all throughout the area, upwards of 300 miles away. And let's not forget that the word that Luke uses here, scattered, is an important word. He uses it on purpose. He's very intentional on using this word. It's the same word that they use in reference to planting something. That farmers go about a field and they scatter the seed. So these men and women were scattered into the fertile ground of the Gentile kingdom to what? To grow and to preach the good news of Jesus. They were scattered to harvest God's people. They were not content sitting on their hands and waiting for something to happen, waiting for something better. They weren't going to wait on something to come along because they had that something that was better. They had the message of Jesus Christ. They had the message of hope and resurrection and salvation found in Christ alone. They had the joy of the Lord. And they had a relationship with the giver of life. And they weren't keeping it to themselves. They were embodying the Great Commission. They were doing what Jesus has called all of us as believers to do and telling the good news. Remember in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, this is what Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As they were going, as they were moving, as they were being dispersed from their families, what were they doing? They were preaching the gospel. They were going about and telling people about Jesus. Their very heart and soul, their very essence was in line with the good news of Jesus and telling other people about it. Because the reality is people haven't heard. People don't know the good news of Jesus, so we have to tell them. That's what we've been instructed to do. If we want our church to be a church that does what God has called us to do, we need to be willing to tell others about Jesus. At the very least, and I mean rock bottom, we need to invite people to church. We need to invite them to church. I know for a fact that there's people sitting in this church who are coming to the church because of another one of our members who just said, hey, I had really fun at church this Sunday, and they started coming a couple Sundays after that. Come on, enjoy enjoy church with us, and here they are worshiping with us. 
And that's exciting. And it's awesome. Inviting people to church is awesome. We get to experience it together. But people still need to hear the gospel, and I preach the gospel and hope they hear it. But the best way for people to understand and to hear the gospel is for you to tell them. It's for you to tell them how God has changed your life. Because God has scattered each one of us to grow. He scattered each one of us to tell others about the good news of Jesus. He scattered each one of us so that we can help to reap the harvest. So that other people can know the good news of Jesus. So we can increase a hunger in our community for God. The people we first hear about here in Antioch, they limited their, their spreading of the gospel. They limited it to it. They were only telling people of Jewish descent. Well, to them, let's think about it. Let's not disparage them. To them, they had no idea that the message of Jesus was for anyone except for the Jewish people, right? He was their Messiah. He was their Christ. He was the one promised to fulfill Scripture. But we know, looking back, right, that the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is greater than just for a particular pe- people. It's greater than just for a particular folk. We shouldn't just share it with people that look like us. We shouldn't just share it with people who talk like us. We shouldn't just share it with those people who vote like us. We need to share it with everybody because everybody needs to know the message. The gospel message is for all people in all places. Jesus is the only hope for all the nations. For the Muslim, for the atheist, for the Mormon, for the immigrant, all places, all people, Jesus is their only hope. So we need to tell everybody he is the hope for all of them. But, though those people were telling the Jewish people, there were some men, we see in verse 20, that were telling other people. And there were some who figured it out along the way that we see this, some of them, men of Cyprus and Serene. They didn't have any names. They didn't have any titles. They were just faithful men preaching the gospel of Jesus. They were just faithfully doing what God has commanded them to do. These men of Cyprus, these men of Serene, they were speaking of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, to the Hellenist. Now, you may be thinking, hey, we've talked about the Hellenists before. Stephen stood before the Hellenists in the synagogue, and Peter stood before the same Hellenists in the synagogues, and aren't they all Jews? Aren't all the Hellenists Jews? Well, there's some debate on this verse that some scholars and theologians believe that this verse means that they were speaking to Hellenistic Jews. But if we just look at the context and the wording of the verse I think it's pretty easy to see that that can't be true. First of all, Luke uses the word but, right? And but is used what? As a a contrasting word, right? It's putting two things against it. So he says, there were those who were preaching to the Jews, but there were men of Cyprus and Cyrene who were preaching to the Hellenist. Luke is obviously contrasting the work of some with the work of others. Some were only preaching to the Jews, but these men were preaching to the Hellenist. Now, I remember sitting back in Bible study class, Bible college, a long time ago, and hearing about the Hellenist and going, what's a Hellenist? Right? What's a Hellenist? It's not someone who loves our organist. Because if, if it was, we're all Hellenist, right? We're all Hellenist. <laughs> no, this word Hellenist simply means someone who partakes in Greek culture and spoke the Greek language. So if you see the word Hellenist, it's Greek. That's what you have to think about, the Greek culture. 
Now, remember, Antioch was a hotbed of Greek culture. And not just Greek culture, but Greek worship, which is pagan worship. They knew very little, if anything, about the Hebrew religion. Rather, they worshipped a multitude of gods, and they lived a life of immorality. So notice what these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, what they preached. They preached the Lord Jesus. Not Jesus the Christ, not Jesus the Messiah, but the Lord Jesus. And this is very in stark contrast to what they had been preaching to Jewish men and women. right? Because they were preaching Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus as the Christ. Jesus as the Messiah. Now, if they would have said all these things to these Hellenists, they would have not, not had any idea what was going on. They would not have understood. I mean, those things are true and those things are good that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Messiah, but that means nothing to these guys. These realities wouldn't amount to a hill of beans in the Greek culture because that didn't mean anything. But the concept of Lord, the word Lord means something to those of Greek, of Greek descent, right? The word is kurios. If you've ever heard the word kurios, it's Greek. And it's the word Lord. And it's used for people in a place of authority. It's a title. Everybody who had any place of authority would use this word, Lord, kurios. Even the Roman emperor. So some would say Lord, and they would say Lord Caesar, or Lord whomever. And that's who they were talking about. But these Christians are saying, no, Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord. He is the one over all. And some men and women were persecuted because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. They would only say Jesus is Lord. So what's going on here? Well, they're preaching and teaching in the same way to... Why aren't they doing this? They're preaching and teaching in the same way to Gentiles that they would the Jews. Well, simply they're speaking the language that the Gentiles, these Greek men and women, would understand. What they would understand. Here's the reality. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that we have our own language. Right? We have Christianese, where we say these words that if we said them to somebody who had never been to church before, they wouldn't understand a word. Right? Let me give you a couple examples because I can see some curious faces on you. So when we say the word sin, people, some people don't know what sin means. When we see, say the word repent, people don't understand what repent means. We take all of these for granted, but people don't understand what they mean. When we say saved or fellowship, born again, grace, trinity, spiritual gifts, there's, I mean, there's a whole plethora that we use our own language. So if you've been in here, you've heard me say them within the walls of the church. I'm sure you've said them together. But other people who have never been to church would never understand it. It's the very same thing for these Hellenists. They would have never known what Messiah or Christ means. Okay? But if you're talking to someone who's never been to church, you need to make the language a little more understandable for them. At least explain what you're talking about. Okay? This is what we call contextualizing. Uh Uh-oh, I used a big word, okay? Contextualizing. You're like, Josh, don't use words that we've never heard before. Isn't that what you just told us? Yeah, that's what I just told you. So let me explain what contextualization is. Okay? So contextualization is when you take a message and you present it in a way that someone will understand. Okay? We do this all the time. We don't change the, the meaning of what's being said, but we do change the way in which we relay it. Let me give you an example. So if you know Levi, my oldest seven-year-old boy, he loves to ask questions. And one day we were talking and he was asking questions about genetics. Like, where did I come from? How did I get to have these, pers- you know, these things? 
And I said, well, one, one way God did this is that he took a little piece of mommy and he took a little piece of daddy and he put them together. And then we have Levi, right? You remember that, don't you, buddy? That, and then for daddy and mommy, he took a little, or for daddy, he took a little piece of papa and he took a little piece of nana and he put them together and then daddy, right? That's how you kind of would explain genetics to a seven-year-old. It was the same way we want to explain the gospel to people who have never heard it before. We want to don't change the message, but we want to change the way that we tell people the message. There was a preacher that I knew that he was talk, we were talking, and he was talking about going out and talking to people about, being, you know, about Jesus. And he said he stopped asking people if they were a Christian. He stopped asking them if they were a Christian because he lived in the South, and you knock on every door, and every door goes, yeah, I'm a Christian. So instead, he changed the question. He said, are you following Jesus? Are you living a life in obedience to Jesus? Because that changes the question. It, no longer can you just say, yeah, mama and granny went to church, so I'm a Christian. Or I go to church twice a year, so I'm a Christian. Or being a Christian is a cultural norm. He's asking us very pointed and specific question, are you following Jesus? And if you say no, then you know what you need to do. You need to tell them about the grace that can be found in Jesus Christ. So every conversation that you have about Jesus, you've got to kind of shift and move a little bit so that people will understand what you're saying. That it's not about how good you can be or how much you follow the rules, but it's about the grace of God, the the unmerited gift that he gives to us. So we need to be able to shift and to guide the conversations in a way that people will understand them. So anyway, so these believers in Antioch, they were evangelizing. They were devoted to tell other people about the good news of Jesus so that they could understand it. If you're trying to tell someone something and they don't or can't understand it, you need to find a new way to explain it. You need to find a new way to explain it. And we, as First Baptist Church Louise, need to be devoted to evangelism. We need to be devoted to telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to be focused on the mission of God. But the, they weren't just focused, the church in Antioch, and we shouldn't just be focused on evangelism. But we should also be devoted to discipleship. Look in verses 11, or 22 through 26. It says this. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them, exhorted them, not exhorted them, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus and to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So discipleship. There are many different layers to discipleship. And we see them here in the context of these verses. First, we see that there's accountability. The church in Antioch wasn't allowed to do whatever they wanted to do. They were overseen by the Jerusalem church through the sending of Barnabas. Barnabas was just making sure that what was going on was in line with the gospel. The church in Jerusalem wanted to do some quality control, right, in order to make sure that the gospel of Jesus wasn't being changed or tainted. And this is important in all aspects of ministry. As a pastor and along with our, our uh, leadership team, I want us to make sure that everything that we do as far as the ministry here from 
Louise, is done to glorify and magnify God. That's the goal of every ministry. And there's going to be some oversight. I want you to be able to do ministry freely, but I also want to make sure that you have the right motivation, that you have the right mission, that you have the right focus, and it's going in the right direction. But in addition to accountability, discipleship, discipleship also needs encouragement. We need to encourage one another. Why? Because following Jesus can be hard. Following Jesus, dying to ourselves, can be difficult. The apostles knew this, so they sent the king of encouragement, this guy Barnabas. Right? He sent, they sent him to Antioch, and Barnabas shows up, and he's excited to see what God is doing. He's rejoicing to see the work that God is doing in this area. He's their biggest cheerleader. He's so happy. He rejoices in their victories. He encouraged them in their difficulties, and he guided them in their purpose. And we need cheerleaders to do ministry when we do it here. We need people to come alongside because sometimes we can get overwhelmed. Sometimes we can get exhausted. We can get burned out. So we need one another to encourage and uplift one another. We don't want to quench the fire of excitement. We want to encourage. We want to fan that flame. We want to encourage and take part. Honestly, one of the best ways that you can encourage someone in ministry is to take a part in it whether you want to take a leadership role within that ministry or you just want to be a participant. It's encouraging when we see new faces in Sunday school. It's encouraging when we see new faces in the sanctuary. It's encouraging to those who are doing those things. We need to encourage one another. Excited. We need to rejoice with one another. Because the ministry work is hard, but it's rewarding. We also encourage them by making sure that they stay faithful and focused. See, I met a guy a couple weeks ago who came in, and he was kind of in this spiritual rut. He was in this spiritual rut when he was going through, and he's, he's been a musician for 27 plus years, and he stay, still plays music as a side gig, but he's got a full-time job, and he plays music Wednesday through Sunday nights, uh, up until like 2 o'clock in the morning. So some Saturday nights when he's playing, he just doesn't have the energy to go to church. He's a believer, and he felt disconnected from God. He felt removed from God's fellowship, partly because those Saturday nights, again, he would play late and he didn't want to get up to go to church. So I asked him, I said, is it worth it? Is it worth it that you're, you're, you're doing this stuff? I mean, I mean, I know you love to play music. I know you love these things, but you're also disconnected from the fellowship. Is it worth it? I told him that following Christ will cost us something, but Christ is much better than whatever it cost us. We spoke for a little while longer and I said, maybe he needs to take a step back. Maybe you need to take a step back from doing the music and focus on Christ. And so I'd said that, and, you know, we prayed, and then he left. A couple weeks go by, and I hear from him again. He's like, hey, I'm in town, and I want to stop by. He said he wanted to meet up, so we met up, and I, he encouraged me because he was listening to what God was saying. And he said, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a step back from my band, and I'm going to focus on my relationship with Jesus. I was like, man, that's, that's encouraging. So it was an encouragement for him, and it's an encouragement for me. And sometimes encouragement looks like hearing things we don't want to hear. Sometimes that's encouragement. To push us further into a relationship with Jesus. Because we tend to like try to cover up where we're, we're detrimental, but sometimes we need encouragement to say, what you're doing is not glorifying God, and here's what you need to do. And sometimes we need that type of encouragement. As these disciples are evangelizing, and they're, they're discipling other believers the Antioch church continued to grow. The numbers were there. Barnabas realized that he couldn't do this on his own. 
So he needed others. So he realized that it's time to go do something else. He's, we, we need some help. So he goes to Tarsus, and he finds Saul. Why did he find Saul? Why did he choose Saul? Why didn't he send a message back to Jerusalem and say, hey, guys in Jerusalem, why don't you send somebody to me? Well, because Saul was perfect for the job. He was perfect for the job. He was educated. He lived among the Hellenists. He knew the Greek culture. He knew their pagan worship. He was the perfect one fit to contextualize the message of Christ to the people of Antioch. And we see that throughout his ministry, and we'll see that throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But So Saul and Barnabas get back, and what do they do? They taught the believers. They discipled the believers. We don't come to Jesus knowing everything, right? We don't come to Jesus knowing everything that we need to know. We have to be taught. We have to learn. We have to grow. We have to be challenged. We have to learn to be like Jesus. We have to learn to love like Jesus. We have to learn to live like Jesus. We have to learn to love the doctrines of God, the art of learning. We have to love being challenged because the depths of God are too deep for us to ever reach the bottom. But the more that we continue to grow and the more that we continue to learn, the more that we continue to be taught, the more that we will grow. And the more that we grow in our knowledge of who Christ is, the more we will love him. I spent seven years studying theology in school. Seven years reading, writing, discussing the things of God intensely. And I stand before you today with honesty and integrity and say that I don't know nothing. When you stand before God, you realize that there, you can never know the depths and the richness of who he is. But every day we grow. Every day we go. I mean, I know a little bit, but I don't know it all. I still have to learn. I still have to grow. You can be a follower of Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years and still learn more about him every single day. The richness of growing and the knowledge of the Lord is great. Knowing him more, loving him more. And one of the most upsetting things that I come across is when we as Christians are portrayed in the media. Because usually when we're portrayed in the media, it's because we're, we're characterized as slow or dim-witted. That the world believes that our faith is shallow and ignorant. But the reality is that there are many intelligent and thoughtful believers across the world. Unfortunately, there are also a lot of people who claim Christ that don't take the time to know Christ. And so when we talk about Christ, we look like fools. When we talk about the things of the Christian religion, we, talk, we look like fools. And one of my passions is discipleship. I love helping people think about and think through their faith. I love helping people answer or at least try to answer some of the most difficult questions. This is how we love God with our mind. We are commanded to love God with all that we have, and that includes our brain. We should be learning, and we should be growing in our knowledge of him. We cannot neglect our mind. The world will ask us difficult questions about our faith. Ask us difficult questions that we have to be willing to think through. And we have to have reasons why we believe what we believe. Once someone has been taught, though, once you've been discipled, 
You have to keep learning. You're, again, you're never going to know it all. But the next step to learn even more is to teach. So this is how we build disciple makers. It's a simple formula. Somebody comes and submits to Christ. They learn about Christ. They tell others about Christ. And then they teach others about Jesus. That's the formula. So you come to Christ, you learn about Christ, you tell others about Christ, you teach others about Christ. That's what disciple-making looks like. That's what a disciple-making church looks like. That's what a church on mission for Jesus looks like. We need to be into the in, and interested in feeding the soul as much as we are the belly. We need to be living a differently from the world than we do. And this is what we see as part of verse 26. And it says, in, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We, hear, we see here that the discipleship brings with it good fruit. This word Christians in the Greek is Christianos. And that, that suffix, ianos, means belonging to or identified by. These men and women were belonging to and identified by their love and devotion to Jesus. These believers were not the ones who came up with this moniker. It was the world. It was those from the outside looking in calling them Christians. Because the name of Christ was always on their lips. The deeds of Christ were always accomplished by their hands. Their very character was that of Christ. They were loving God and they were loving people. In a diverse city, many languages, many movements, much sin, they were living like Christ. Because many people worshipped different gods in Antioch. They lived pagan lives and they saw these Christians and they saw they didn't live like them. They saw these Christians and they also saw that they didn't live like the Jewish people. They were different. It's almost as if God had created a third category. That there were, because if you think about it, in Jewish thought, there were Jews and there were the Gentiles. You were part of one group or the other. If you weren't Jewish and you weren't Gentile, what were you? You were Christian. God had created a new creation for himself. A new people for himself. The Christians who were looking like and being like Jesus. Not only did they focus on discipleship, though. Not only did they focus on looking like Jesus. But these early believers wanted to take care of people. In verses 27 through 30, this is what we see. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And then in Acts 12.25, we see the conclusion of this. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So the church in Antioch was involved in what we would call mercy ministry. In these verses, we see that they were generous when it came to helping out those in need. A famine came, and each person, not some of them, not the most wealthy, but each one of them, according to his ability, sent relief to the believers in Judea. 
Here's the reality. A healthy church is a generous church. A healthy church is a generous church. If we have the ability to help those that are hurting, we should be helping those who are hurting. Why? Because the mission of God is bigger than our bank account. The mission of God is bigger than our resources. The mission of God is greater than us. We should always be on the lookout for individuals as, as individuals and as a corporate body for ways that we can be generous to those who are hurting. We need to care about those who are hurting. We need to be generous because God has been generous to us. But in order for us as a church body to be generous to the community, we need our members to be generous to the church, to demonstrate Christ's generosity. Because we see that it's a great mercy that Christ is generous towards us. And we should show that same mercy as well. And finally, our church should have open doors. If we look at Acts 13, 1 through 3, we see this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid, laid hands on, their hands on them and sent them off. We should be a church of open doors, meaning that we should be open to all people who are followers of Jesus in, in places of leadership and in membership. As we look at the Antioch church, we see that the people, the church consisted of people from all different walks of life, not just in membership, but also in leadership. There's a healthy standard for church congregations when it comes to how we should look what our demographic should be. Here's the standard. A church should look like the neighborhood it's in. The church membership should look like the neighborhood it's surrounded by. If the neighborhood is in a community and it's 60% white and 20% black and 20% Hispanic, that's what the church should reflect. That's how it should look. If a church did that, that would mean that they're impacting their community. Right? That would mean that they're infiltrating their community and spreading the good news of Jesus, not to those who just look like them or act like them, but to everybody. And I'll be honest that if we wanted to do that, which I'm sure we should, I know we should, it would take getting used to. Things would have to be done a little bit differently if we want to reach the community. As many of you know, a few weeks ago, Corey and I went on a retreat with the association. We went on a minister minister and wives retreat. It was a good time of fellowship and relaxation. But I want to tell you that the best part for me didn't come from some conversations or didn't come from getting to spend some time away from my kids. It was when we were gathered together and we had a worship service. And here's what happened. They took some of the the, uh, pastors, some of the Hispanic pastors, and they got up and they led us in worship. They played their guitar and they sang their songs. And I didn't understand a word of what was being sung. I didn't know anything, but God did, and I know that he was pleased. I know that he was pleased because these men were using their talents and time to glorify and worship God, and it was an absolute joy to sit there and listen, to sit there and and be involved in what they were doing, because I know that this is what heaven's going to look like, that all tongues, all tribes, and all nations are going to worship God. 
that we're going to sit up there and we're not going to know some of the things that are being said, but we know that they're glorifying God. That's what our communities should look like. That's what our church should look like. So if you want to engage the community, we need to be open to changing our preferences in order to open an inviting church to the community. Not only do we need to be open about people joining us, but we also have to be open about people leaving us. We need to be committed to training and discipling people so that they can go out and preach the gospel like Saul and Barnabas. One of the things that really excited me when I was first speaking with the pastor search committee was that they, one of their desires was that within the next 10 years we would plant a church. That one of their goals was within the next 10 years that we would plant a church that we would train and educate and disciple someone to send them out so that they can plant a church in a community that needs a church so that they can hear the good news of Jesus. So in that sense, it's sad to see people leave, but if they're going out and we have to say a gospel goodbye, praise the Lord that they're going to preach the gospel. I want to train and educate and disciple people in this community so that they can go out and tell others about Jesus Christ. That's what our goal, that's what our hope, that's what our aim should be, is to train people. You know, sitting out here, looking amongst, we've got some young kids in here. I'm praying that one of these days, one of these young boys get to be the next pastor of this church. That we train them up, that we raise them up, that they could be the next pastor of this church. That we're training from within. Maybe they're not here yet, maybe we can bring them in from the community and train them. That's my hope. That's my goal. Our doors need to be open to all who come and open to all those who will go and make disciples. Pray that we are a mission-focused church like the church in Antioch. That we will tell others about Jesus. That we will grow in our relationship with Jesus. That we will be generous like Jesus and that we will be open to change. Not just for change's sake so that other people can hear about Jesus. As we wrap up the sermon today, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. So I have my ushers go ahead and come down, please. This is a time to reflect on the life 